You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello, this is February 1st. I'm Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the February edition of Editor's Picks. This month, I will begin by speaking to Dr. Roland Chaperlet who's a senior author of a, the article titled Plasma Cartilage Acidic Protein 1, measured by ELISA, is associated with progression to total joint replacement in postmenopausal women. He will give you a summary of the important findings of this interesting paper. So uh, we have already published that in the same cohort uh, me- uh, measurement of CTX2. So CTX2 with a uh, degradation, the a, a type 2 collagen uh, marker of degradation. Uh, and um, so we have uh, found that higher levels of CTX2 are associated with more progression and specifically the higher levels are also associated with uh, a higher rate of uh, joint replacement in the knee and hip. <clears throat> so uh, in a prior paper, we have uh, found that uh, we, we have measured the CTX2 in the wall cohort and uh, we are able to compare those with uh, joint replacement with controls. And in this uh, present analysis with CRTAC1, uh, we've made a smaller analysis, which is a case control analysis. So we've done, we've measured uh, CRTAC1 in those who had joint replacement uh, matched with two controls. So match were, uh, match um, based on BMI and age. So probably less uh, statistical power than in the prior analysis with CTX2. But anyway, uh, we found that there was a, a comparable association of the two markers. So uh, odds ratios around um, 1.7 per SD change, um, and which were also comparable to the prior analysis using proteomic approaches in the three other cohorts. So I think that's pretty compelling. I hope you have enjoyed listening to Dr. Chaperlet on behalf of all the authors of the paper titled Plasma Cartilage Acidic Protein 1 measured by ELISA is associated with the progression to total, total joint replacement in postmenopausal women. I think you will enjoy listening to the full interview and reading the full-length article which is currently available on our website at www.jroom.org. There is increasing interest in the early events leading to the development of rheumatoid arthritis, and it is of note that the possibility that mucosal surfaces may be important in these early events. In the next article, I will highlight by Hemgren and colleagues titled Elevated Serum Levels of Zolin Family Peptide in Anti-Citrulated Protein Antibodies Positive At-Risk Individuals Without Arthritis. Examine the serum levels of Zolin Family Proteins ZFP 
P in two independent cohorts of ACPA positive patients at risk to develop RA. The ZEP levels have been shown to be associated with intestinal integrity and that dysbiotic microbiota may lead to ZEP release. The authors prospectively compared a total of 389 ACPA positive individual who had any type of musculoskeletal complaint but did not have inflammatory arthritis. This is the at-risk populations. 100 healthy controls without MSK complaints and 100 ACPA negative individuals who had nonspecific MSK complaints. All three groups were then prospectively followed for the development of inflammatory arthritis. In the initial cohort of 82 patients at risk for development of RA, 48% developed an inflammatory arthritis. On the second cohort, it was 42%. These are called the progressors. The serum ZEF levels were significantly elevated as compared to healthy controls in the first cohort, and the median time to progression was six months. In the second cohort, ZEP levels were significantly elevated when they were compared to ACPA-negative symptomatic controls, and mean time to development of inflammatory arthritis in the 42% in this cohort was 12 months. These results suggest that increased intestinal permeability may be an early event leading to RA. In the discussion, the authors expand on this hypothesis and suggest what studies still need to be done to support the role of gut permeability in the development of RA. The Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Activity Index or BASDI, is a commonly used instrument for measuring disease activity in patients with spondyloarthritis. In their paper titled, Use of the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Index in Patients with PSA with and Without Axial Disease, Reddy and colleagues examined the responsiveness of the BASDI in patients with psoriatic arthritis, and whether it could differentiate those with both axial and peripheral disease and those with peripheral disease alone. The cohort consisted of 119 patients with PSA who were initiating therapy and were part of a longitudinal U.S.-based cohort. 80% of the patients, the new therapy was a biologic DMARD. 
Patients were assessed at baseline and then at 16 and 52 weeks after the initiation of therapy. The mean age of the cohort was 49 years and 55% were female. Authors found that the mean BASDI at baseline were similar between the groups at five for the 40 patients with axial and peripheral PSA and 4.8 in the 79 patients with peripheral disease only. They also found there was no significant differences in patient-reported outcome scores between the groups. The mean change at over time for the BASDI was similar among the axial plus peripheral versus the peripheral disease only. Standardized response means were similar across the two groups for the, the BASDI and for the individual items of the BASDI. Authors found that although the BASDI was responsive to change in both cohorts, it could not differentiate patients with axial PSA and those with peripheral disease only. In the discussion, the author go on to state the implications of this study regarding the best way to measure outcomes in patients with PSA with and without axial disease. The fourth paper to highlight is titled Risk Factor and Incidence of Serious Infections in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Patients Undergoing Rituximab Therapy and is by Sun and colleagues. The aim of this paper, which the title gives you a hint of, was to evaluate the risk and determine if there are factors which were protective of serious infection in patients with SLE after rituximab therapy within 180 days of the first infusion. They, they looked at 174 SLE patients with a mean age of 38.8 years, of whom 90% were female, who were followed for a minimum of 180 days. The majority of patients were on another immunosuppressive, and the mean prednisolone equivalent dose was 15 milligrams per day. They found in this cohort of 174, there were 42 episodes of serious infection for a prevalence of 24%. This occurred in 31 or 18% of the patients. The median time to first infection was 41 days after the first rituximab infusion. The most common infections were pneumonia, followed by soft tissue infections, and then intra-abdominal infections. Opportunistic infection occurred in seven patients, of which five were pneumocystis gerovecchi and two CMV pneumonia. 
12 patients died during the 180-day follow-up, 11 from pneumonia, and one from intra-abdominal bleeding and sepsis. In a multivariate Cox regression model, the risk factors for the development of a serious infection were the presence of chronic kidney disease and a prednisolone equivalent dose of greater than or equal to 15 milligrams per day, while the use of hydroxychloroquine was found to be protective. This is an important article to read to determine how to, one can decrease the risk of serious infections in SLE patients treated with rituximab. Previous studies have suggested that patients with a JIA may have increased risk of anxiety and depression, but there still remain many unanswered questions. The aim of the, therefore, the aim of the study titled Psychiatric Morbidity is Common Among Children with Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis, a national match cohort study by Pedersen and colleagues, was to determine if there were differences in the psychiatric morbidity between children with JIA and their peers, and to determine if the effect of parental socioeconomic status altered this association. This was a matched cohort study, and each child with JIA was matched to 100 randomly selected age and sex matched children without a history of JIA or without a history of psychiatric diagnosis prior to the index case date of diagnosis. The JIA cohort consisted of 2,086 Danish children with a mean age at diagnosis of 8.1 years, of which 62.7% were female. During follow-up, 9.9% of the JIA patients received a psychiatric diagnosis as compared to 8.45% of the controls for an unadjusted hazard ratio 1.18. After adjustment for both socioeconomic factors and parental psychiatric disease, there was no significant change in the hazard ratio as it was 1.17. When individual psychiatric diseases were examined, significant associations of J were found only for depression, hazard ratio 1.69, and adjustment disorder with a hazard ratio of 1.13, but not for anxiety, which had been suggested in previous studies. More details for the individual psychiatric disorders are outlined in the results section, while the discussion section goes over the implications of their study to the care of children with JIA and the generalizability of a study done in Denmark as compared to other healthcare systems.
This month, the article for Panorama 360D, the degrees of rheumatology, is entitled The Big Picture, Patient Drawings of Gout and the Relationship to Illness Perception and Stigma. This article highlights the importance of patient's drawings in assessing their perception of disease and shows illustrative drawings. It makes for interesting reading. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 63-year-old woman who presented with muscle weakness, which had been progressing over a 10-year period. She had a history of Sjogren's syndrome, and had been treated with hydroxychloroquine at 400 milligrams a day for a cumulative dose of 4,526 grams. She was found to have limb girdle weakness with an elevated CK at 830. Echocardiogram showed diastolic dysfunction with a preserved ejection fraction and a bright myocardium. Certain troponin I would, had been noted to be chronically elevated, as was her N-terminal pro-brain natural retic peptide. A muscle biopsy showed vacuoles with basophilic material, which was positive for acid phosphatase within the muscle fibers, but there was no evidence of inflammation. A diagnosis of hydroxychloroquine cardiomyotoxicity was made, and of course, the hydroxychloroquine was stopped. The images show characteristic findings on the muscle biopsy, and a cardiac MRI demonstrates vocal enhancement. This month, I'd like to bring your attention to two editorials, which were standalone editorials. The first is by Drs. Jeffrey Dribben, Bill Jesdale, and Timothy McCaldin, and is titled Embracing Diversity, the Imperative to Represent the LGBTQ Plus Community in Rheumatology Research. The second is titled Disease Classification Criteria for Diagnosis or for Research. In fact, for neither. This controversial title and the article are by Dr. Sasan and Yusuf Yaziki. Our expert review in statistics this month is titled Statistical and Scientific Considerations Concerning the Interpretation, Replicability, and Transportability of Research Findings and is by Drs. Richard Cook and Gerald Lawless. It gives an overview and suggestions on how to interpret the results of research. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read all the articles in the February 2024 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in print or in the online edition which is available at www.jroom.org. I also invite you to see, to view the interview with the complete interview with the author of my highlighted paper and any previous 
articles, interviews you may have missed. They are all available at viewing at our website and at our YouTube site. If you have any comments or questions on these highlighted articles, in fact, any articles in, in the Journal of Rheumatology this month or any month, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please join me for the March 2024 edition of Editor's Highlights. See you next month.